On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the June 2018 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for another terrific conversation and a lively debate. Sorry for it being posted a little, a little later than normal. We just ran into all kinds of scheduling issues. But here we are. So my first guest today is Dr. Douglas Wood, the Henry N. Harkins Professor and Chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Washington. He's also the head of the Multidisciplinary Lung Cancer Program at the University of Washington. He's here to talk about his editorial point. Should lung cancer screening be expanded to persons who don't currently meet accepted criteria set forth by the CHESS guidelines on lung cancer screening? Yes. Uh, Dr. Wood, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Hogarth. Okay, and now we move on to our counter-argument, Dr. Peter Mazzone from the Cleveland Clinic. He's a member of the Respiratory Institute and is the director of the Lung Cancer Program and the Lung Cancer Screening Program at the Cleveland Clinic. He's here to talk about his editorial, Should Lung Cancer Screening Be Expanded to Persons Who Don't Currently Meet Accepted Criteria Set Forth by the CHESS Guidelines on Lung Cancer Screening? No. <laughs> Peter, thanks for joining us. Dr. Mazzone, glad to have you on the, on the phone. Thanks very much for the invitation. Okay, so guys, um, start us off just so our listeners have a you know a background here. Are the, are the ACCP guidelines for lung cancer are they being updated? Um, how you know can you give us an overview on that? And and are there substantial differences between the ACCP and other sort of professional societies and guidelines? You know, so give a background just so that our listeners understand the the, the structure of of what the two of you are, are trying to debate and outline here. And Peter, I'll turn that one over to you. You're the author, sure. so you're probably best best uh, place to comment on the new guidelines from ACCP. Yeah, sure. The the last set of guidelines were published in 2013, and over the past 18 months or so, uh, you know, the, the group from CHESS, the group of authors, and and the CHESS uh, guideline committee um, worked hard to update the evidence base and tried to thoughtfully put together recommendations uh, for uh, for these current guidelines. And these were published a couple of months ago, available uh, available online and in press at this time. So there were a couple of uh, substantial changes. Um, I'll start with the ones that are unrelated to today's, uh, today's debate. Uh, but the, these guidelines were a little bit more complete in terms of uh, giving uh, recommendations for how to implement and run a high-quality screening program. Uh, they weren't just whether you should screen or not and who you should screen, but how do you screen and how do you do it well. Um, we were fortunate that the CHEST guidelines allowed a little bit more flexibility. In the past, you had to meet um, certain evidence standards to leave any kind of recommendation, and now you're allowed to use some judgment to say um, this isn't a, necessarily a recommendation, but uh, a statement or comment um, based on you know best evidence and experience. And so, where implementation didn't have a whole lot of um, strong, strong evidence to go on, we were still able to make some hopefully meaningful comments. In the area that we'll be uh, discussing today, the, there were a couple of uh, meaningful changes to who CHEST recommends uh, screening for. Um, the very core group, the core group of eligibility uh, is not a lot different. We raised the upper age limit from 74 to 77, uh, which is in line with CMS recommendations and 
largely based on the group that was screened in the National Lung Screening Trial. Um, where the, this debate will go is in the next set of recommendations, and that is in can we screen outside of that core eligibility group? And, you know, I'll leave the details to, to our conversation, but essentially we said at this time we didn't favor a policy change for the cohort of individuals identified as being at high risk for lung cancer but not meeting current eligibility criteria. Um, uh, but very, very importantly, we were allowed to put several remarks in, and the remarks under that core recommendation um, both uh, explained why we made that recommendation, but then also stated uh, that we recognize that there are people who are at high risk and aren't uh, covered in our core recommendation who may benefit from screening, and that individual could be considered to be screened by the practicing clinician you know, with proper discussion of benefits and harms. So that was an another substantial change in the guideline. Okay, so with that background, and I, you know, and I did fail to mention, Peter, this was uh, the, the April podcast was to obviously highlight the, the, those guidelines. That was my mistake to highlight that. But, but as the as the two as the point counterpoint, and, and for our listeners, obviously, uh, please read obviously the articles. They're they're a, they're a fantastic uh, review, and 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 people make you know the, the both authors make excellent points, and that we're going to obviously expand on here. But um, the the point of this uh, of this discussion was. Uh, as 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 Dr. Wood's going to uh, lead us off, so so Doug, talk to us about uh, the the disagreement you have. I, I guess is the is a way to to put it in regards to the new guidelines. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. I uh, you know I'll be honest. I always second guess myself if I'm disagreeing with uh, Dr. Mazone uh, because he's <laughs> somebody I uh, I respect enormously uh, in general and in this lung cancer screening. Space. I mean, there's uh, not anyone that I can think of that's more knowledgeable in the in the area. And in fact, you know, we do agree. You know, probably 95 to 97 percent of the issues. And in fact, the new uh, chest guidelines are great in in outlining some of the additional uh, areas that are important about implementation and and quality. Um, but where we have a difference, and that's what you want us to talk about, is um, is where there's uncertainty, and when there's uncertainty, which way the needle should fall. That is, should it fall towards um, denying access to patients for screening, um, or should it fall towards shared decision-making and a consideration of those patients for screening? And um, it's that that nuance where we we come down on opposite sides of the equation um, that are actually fairly close but importantly different. Um, and the other major guidelines be, besides the ACCP guidelines are obviously the National Comprehensive Cancer Network or NCCN. And you know, a disclosure: I do chair that guideline group, just like uh, Dr. Mazone chairs and first authored the uh, guideline group from ACCP. And an important difference is the NCCN uh, panel of multidisciplinary experts uh, uh, came down on the side of looking at 
an expanded criteria that were qualitatively estimated. And I have to emphasize it's qualitative, not high evidence base, of being a similar risk of developing lung cancer of those studied in NLST and recommending that that cohort of patients should also be eligible for shared decision-making and consideration of screening. And, you know, in Dr. Mazzone's comments, uh, he, he talks about uncertainty and where there's uncertainty of the balance between harms and benefits that one should not extend screening to those individuals. And to a large degree, I I agree with that. Uh, I do not think that we ought to water down screening to lower risk individuals. But uh, the the nuance is that there are other risk factors for lung cancer other than age and smoking history that was studied in the NLST. Those ought to also be factors in consideration of patients eligible for screening and and those patients. Uh, ought to have access to lung cancer screening programs. That's our fundamental difference. Okay, so so Peter, what do you think? And then let's then let's get into some specifics after that. Yeah, I think everything uh, Doug described, you know, is is accurate. Uh, I think that there are far more similarities, not just in our own personal approaches, but in the our our separate guidelines than than there are differences. And I think conversations like this and um, these written debates and such have probably moved the two of them closer together rather than farther apart over time. Uh, I think that's some of the value of these kinds of, uh, of discussions. I think from the very first NCCN guidelines to where we are now, you know, they've included uh, risk prediction scores that weren't there before, uh, you know, more strongly highlighting uh, the need to be screening healthy individuals and not folks who are going to die of other causes soon. And in our guidelines, as I've, the CHESS guidelines, as I've mentioned, we've moved away from just the one strict group to say, uh, you know, in our remarks that you should consider individuals who are at high risk and otherwise quite healthy, um, where our comments uh, and recommendations uh, differ are that the entire cohort shouldn't automatically be considered for uh, screening, that we would not screen that cohort as a whole. So I think we've moved, uh, you know, closer together because we, we both recognize, uh, you know, the toll that lung cancer has on society and um, the need to identify uh, lung cancer, uh, curable lung cancer um, in patients who are capable of tolerating those treatments. Some of the, you know, difference is, um, uh, in principle, it's saying, should we uh, say there's just a small amount of uncertainty that we can overcome by having a good shared decision-making conversation with our patients? And uh, I think where, where there are still some questions is, you know, is that just a small amount of uncertainty and has... Um, lung cancer screening across the country gotten good enough, have been implemented with high enough quality to have the kind of shared decision-making visits um, that can really help us to to bridge the gap of evidence there. And uh, I'm not quite sure it has as of yet. And so where we uh, came down on that was, uh, as I 
as I've already expressed, is that we just don't feel ready to say policy should change, let's expand to other high-risk groups, um, but please, on an individual basis, to uh, be thoughtful, um, be, be your patient's advocates. Yeah, so, and I would, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do a comeback to that because, you know, um, uh, Peter and I like each other and we're too nice to actually get into it, but we do have to, you know, make this interesting. And, and, um, and so what I would point out is, uh, you know, using words which are important, uh, you know, Dr. Mazzone, uh portrays the, the risk and benefits uh, of lung cancer screening as being, a difference being tenuous at best. And I would disagree with that. I do not think that they are tenuous. And, and that probably ends up being a core of how we land on different sides of this equation in those where there's uncertainty. Because if he's, if he believes it's tenuous, then a little bit of uncertainty can easily tilt the scale away from screening. And if I feel that the benefits are stronger, then it's easy for me to lean the other way. The difference is that I think um, we have evolved enormously since the study of the National Lung Screening Trial. And most of the risks that are portrayed are the risks that were relating to those patients that were in the cohort of the National Lung Screening Trial in terms of the false positives and the downstream testing. And we, we all want to diminish the harms of screening, which uh, are important. And um, what we've evolved since the, lung, the National Lung Screening Trial is, first of all, the American College of Radiology has developed lung RADs, an application of lung RADs to the NLST group decreases false positives in the initial screen by 50% and in the follow-up screens by 75%. So if we take the benefit identified in the NLST and now decrease the harms of false positives by 50 to 75%, we have uh, already started to uh, move the argument more in favor of screening. And the second point is that the NLST only did three rounds of screening and then did subsequent follow-up. So each year that the patients aren't screened waters down the potential survival benefit of the screened patients. And so um, the, the fact of a 20% um, mortality benefit of the low-dose CT is only in three rounds of screening most likely underestimates the true benefit of screening. So um, when, when one looks at just, for example, those two things, and there are others that we can talk about, but just those two things, um, I, I feel that the results of the NLST, which were substantial, meaning a randomized trial, that when one looks at all the benefits and risks, had a 20% mortality reduction, that if anything, those opportunities are better for patients today, 15 years later, than they were at the outset of that trial, and and push the equation more in favor of being uh, aggressive about access for lung cancer screening patients. 
Yeah, you know, I, I hope uh, we're where Dr. Wood says we are. I'm not as as convinced that that's the case. You know, uh, in particular, you know, the NLST was a healthier population than the eligible group in general, uh, in uh, of our general group that we're going to be screening. These uh, patients were managed largely at larger centers with lung nodule experts, and so now we're translating that to uh, implementation across the country where the uh, patients who are going to be screened may be less healthy, may be less tolerant of biopsies for, uh, for nodules, may be less tolerant of resection for surgery. Um, the question of we're better at managing the harms is, I think, really unanswered, and hopefully we'll get some more data in that regard soon. Uh, the ACR's registry may be one source of that. Um, lung grads, as an example, the decrease in false positives is uh, certainly uh, very beneficial. Um, but the other side of that was 10 to 15% of the early stage cancers would have not been identified because of the raising the size threshold for the nodules. So decreased false positives comes at a little bit of a cost. Now, if those patients come back for their annual CT scan, it shouldn't matter. Most of those real small cancers won't have progressed beyond the point they could be cured. But the lung cancer screening community is struggling to get their patients back for their annual exams. Even large, well-supported programs are reporting you know, 60% compliance with annual follow-up. So in my own program, I consider the Category 2s positive. The follow-up is a year from now at your annual scan. And so I still have 80% of all my patients with nodules, not 15% like lung rads might suggest. Until we can prove that compliance with screening is excellent, the value of decreasing the false positives may not be seen. Also, the most substantial harm is probably not overcalling these tiny nodules. It's in the management of the larger nodules, which are the same lung rads or not. It's the Category 4s, and are we going to be over-biopsying or not? Uh, Doug and I heard uh, Ella uh, Kazaruni uh, present just a couple snippets of information from the ACR's registry, and she commented in the registry 28% of resections are still for benign nodules. Um, so we, I'm not convinced we've come a long way in reducing the harms, though I'm optimistic that that can happen in time and with you know, experience and education, and, and that can help to support uh, a change in our criteria. I just don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with Dr. Mazone that the population uh, is not the same as the NLST. Um, it, it is somewhat different, probably not enormously different, or at least somewhat different, because, and that's true of any clinical trial, that, which generates uh, having uh, usually healthier and more connected individuals. Uh, and so that, that caution is certainly appropriate. Um, I'm, and the problem of follow-up uh, is, is certainly an issue. 
because we do rely upon follow-up to uh, allow um, non-invasive management of small nodules. And um, Claudia Henschke and her group has have well demonstrated that you can move from the four millimeter nodule considered positive in the NLST to six millimeters uh, and decrease the false positives by over half and actually not miss any cancers. And so that's why uh, the lung rads is where it is and, and also NCCN guidelines change to not consider anything less than six millimeters positive. Um, and, and the issue that Dr. Mazzone brought up about follow-up is certainly one, you know, uh, the issue that I care about um, at least as much is the slow uptake in screening because what we've, we've done is we've identified uh, a group of patients even if Dr. Mazzone and I completely agreed on it, and we do agree on the majority of patients, uh, only 2 to 4% of them are being screened. And granted, this is still very early in the lung cancer screening experience. One can't expect a culture to change and all of those patients to show up for screening. Um, but I think one has to be concerned about the barriers, and I'll say potentially unintended barriers to screening, and some of them are uh, uh, access to programs, um, the requirements for shared decision-making, and, and still a stigma attached to patients who have been smokers of, uh, and a, a nihilism about the benefit of identifying lung cancer at a stage that it can be cured. Yeah, I, I fully agree. It's uh, it is critical that you know we, as a screening and lung cancer community, work hard to increase the uptake of screening. Uh, you know, we both very much feel that, that there's a strong potential for uh, reducing you know the burden of lung cancer by by doing so. Um, you know, in my own experience, part of the uh, speed of uptake has to do with how uh, easy it is for the ordering providers, the primary care practitioners, uh, to remember criteria and to remember to discuss this with their patients and send them for screening. Um, so I think it's important when we're considering adjustments to criteria to recognize that they can't become too complex if age and smoking history alone is uh, difficult for uh, the primary care community to, you know, get accustomed to and start to order these, then, you know, uh, making it much harder with a risk prediction calculator or something of that nature um, may have unintended consequences of actually not helping to get more patients screened. Uh, I think it's an opportunity for us to develop tools within our EMRs, uh, population management tools uh, that can really help the primary care community to identify who's eligible using current criteria and then whatever happens as, uh, as evidence evolves. It, it's probably important for all of us to remember that that you know, mammography wasn't an instantaneous, suddenly everyone's getting mammograms overnight. You know, this was 
you know, I mean, rightful, rightfully so, those of us in the lung cancer field are, are very impatient. We've waited a long time for some good news, and so we kind of want it tomorrow. But, but we do have to caution that you know, it did take a while to build the infrastructure that we currently take you know, as sort of the norm uh, for, for breast, as examples. You know, and that, I think we, as the new guidelines do highlight, you know, we're, we're trying to offer more of a framework to get ourselves there, if, if I wanted to paraphrase some of the you know, earlier discussion. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I shared this with Doug. We, we we had had an experience working, you know, working our tails off to educate our um, our local community and patients and providers about screening, and had a, a really um, nice but slowish growth in our own program. And then uh, we're fortunate to have uh, an alert come live in our EMR, and uh, overnight the numbers went up about fivefold. Um, so I think that we need those kind of tools, and in some way, these uh, more straightforward criteria help uh, help us in developing those tools to really provide the kind of guidance we need for a, a much bigger uptake. And while that's happening, continue to you know to work to identify who the best folks are and how we can minimize these harms to broaden our criteria even further. Yeah, and I I would push back a little on Peter being worried that uh, adding additional risk factors that it adds too much complexity for uh, individ- for patients to be referred and has might have unintended negatives uh, I think that your your lung cancer screening program is you know, there are different models yours is a good model of a centralized program where um, you encourage your primary care team to identify potentially eligible patients that then you have your your expertise within the lung cancer screening program to refine which patients are truly eligible and get screened. And, and of course, your team does have that ability to look at nuances of the other risk factors. And, and uh, Kyle, related to your comment on mammography, just to, uh, you know, mammography is, is in the fabric of early detection and prevention um, of health, American healthcare. And we use a metric of number needed to screen, you know, how many people do we need to screen to save a life? And the numbers are always big in screening. It's, it's over 300 people that we need to screen to save a life of lung cancer. But uh, it's important to recognize that that is three to five-fold more efficient if one uses number of lives saved per screen than mammography. So uh, compared to a screening modality that uh, we, we all endorse and is, uh, is a, in the fabric of preventive services in the United States, lung cancer screening, is more effective on a on a number needed to screen to save a life. That's an excellent point, guys. One of the things that I'm struck by that you know, as reading through your articles, almost a philosophical difference. And I think Doug, you highlighted some in your articles, in the sense that you know, as Peter's highlighting, you know, we we haven't even done it right yet for the people that we know definitively would benefit from this, that the implementation has been so poor nationwide that to start to try to muddy the waters and expand it even further 
seems crazy when we haven't gotten it right with the first group. But if I'm reading it correctly and want to, don't want to put words into either of your mouths, but, but Doug's argument is, but maybe if we expand it, we're, we're, we're limiting already groups that we would all agree have an established risk to, to, to some degree, and why are we putting limits when we can have shared decision-making to have discussions with a patient to say, yeah, you probably have too many medical comorbidities to have this really be of concern, so I won't screen you for you know, X, Y, and Z reasons. But maybe in a different patient population, we might be even more successful in our infl- implementation, and therefore we could see the same benefits um, even though we don't have that same large randomized trial that we, you know, obviously have built all this foundation on, is that a is that a fair paraphrasing of the of the arguments here? I'd say it's close. Uh, yeah, no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare claim to be able to put put words in either I, of your mouth. <laughs> I wouldn't use the term that we don't have it right yet in the NLST group. I think, you know, we have concurrence uh, on uh, recommendations that those patients be screened, yet even with that concurrence, recognizing that there are subsets even within that group who are at lower risk and have less benefit. Right. Um, And it's this aspect of, uh, I guess, how I would portray it is, one of the barriers, and I don't know if this is a barrier, but I guess I, I'm concerned about it being a barrier to uptake of lung cancer screening, is a sense from primary care of uncertainty on our part, the lung cancer experts, um, and and why I brought up the using the term tenuous balance between risks and harms. You know that that's not a ringing endorsement. For lung cancer screening, and and so I worry that besides other factors of just getting screening programs up and going and getting education out, but that the, an aspect of um, uncertainty amongst us as lung cancer experts uh, is chilling in the uh, the development of enthusiasm of screening as a way of decreasing lung cancer mortality. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's, uh, that that's fair, too. We, we really have to promote, um, promote the right message, what we feel here. And, and I uh, you know, fully support screening and have worked awfully hard to grow, um, to grow screening. I think that the choice of the words uh, were meant mainly to illustrate that screening is a program, not a test, that screen lung cancer screening really has to be done with high quality to get the kind of outcomes that we think um, are available from lung cancer screening. Um, and so it was to uh, highlight that the rest of that manuscript was just as important as saying who should and shouldn't be screened. It's how do you do it and let's do it right. Or you're going to tip the balance the wrong way. Um, that that is a real possibility. Um, I think, unlike other forms of screening, uh, the kinds of harms that are possible from lung cancer screening are are potentially serious ones. And and if you've ever had that happen, or you've um, hurt somebody who had no reason to be tested otherwise, you know it. it uh, you know it it sticks with you. So. Um, I think that uh, that 
the phrase, I understand Doug's point, but I think it still is an important one because really getting it right is is uh, so critically important. And sometimes, you know, I think, am I am I doing that disservice? And you know, at least I take a, a good look and say we present this kind of information uh, to uh, our patients, and uh, almost all of the patients, only two uh, percent or so of those that we have a shared decision making with visit within our program. And me being considered on the conservative side here, only about two percent say no after hearing the benefits and harms as we present them. The only letter we've got from these guidelines was actually a letter uh, in the opposite direction that, that we've had to respond to, and that somebody, uh, you know, whether another well-intentioned, uh, you know, evidence-driven person is saying, you know, you're promoting screening too much, not not too little. So there is a wide spectrum of, of beliefs out there, and that certainly can be confusing. I think uh, that that would um, it. It's on us to present the right messages to our patients. And I agree to, with Dr. Mazzone on that. I, you know, on this, I think we are in full agreement that lung cancer screening is a process, not a test, that, right. that the quality of how you do it is imperative to make it successful. There's lots of layers of that quality you know, that starts with the conduct of the test but then evolves through the algorithm of how you manage screen-detected abnormalities, and then ultimately, you know, for those patients that uh, appear to have lung cancer, what surgery they have. And, and, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I have really been emphasizing to surgeons, to thoracic surgeons, who have had a default position, I think, up until screening of somebody sends them uh, a lung lesion that's likely lung cancer, then the knee-jerk response is to take it out. And, you know, I think sometimes we are characterized as not being cognitive specialists because that's all we do is we, you know, somebody <laughs> sends us something and we take it out. And and one of the the things that I've been trying to educate thoracic surgeons about as we move into this arena of lung cancer screening is that it's really important which ones we don't take out and to and to restrain ourselves and and hold back and allow the thoughtful algorithmic management that has been carefully uh, uh, developed by lung rads in the, by the American College of Radiology or the algorithmic management that's analogous to it from the NCCM that that recommends follow-up imaging for a new lesion to make sure it's persistent, uh, that uh, recommends follow-up for non-solid lesions instead of removing uh, them because a lot of those are going to be over-diagnosis and may never be a threat to someone's life. And I'll say in my own practice that on average once a week, I tell somebody, I think you have lung cancer and we're not going to take it out. We're going to follow it up. We're going to see if it changes over time because this very well might be a low low malignancy or, or um, a not very aggressive tumor that you may never die from. And if you're not going to die from it, there's not a reason for us to take it out. And that's going to be part of the success of, of changing that equation between risks and benefits by us as surgeons 
not taking out benign lesions or rarely doing it, and holding our hand when there are are uh, are low uh, malignancy lesions that somebody may never die from, and allowing patients and observation to determine natural history in those patients. I think this has allowed us to be better even beyond screening, you know, that the lessons learned here are applied to lung nodule management in general. And we, we uh, I think, are better because of this uh, experience we've gained in screening and all of this, this evidence. It's also brought an amazing amount of attention to early detection with, uh, you know, opportunities for development of biomarkers and other things that wouldn't have been present had um, had the NLST not been successful. Yes, agree. Agree. Well, guys, we've been we've been talking for a while, and and, and obviously a lot of the arguments are outlined in the paper, and and I think there's been, as as expected, has been a fantastic discussion. Is there anything that you know a key point or something that you know both of you wanted to get across that we just we haven't yet, and you know I want to be respectful of both of your time and our listeners' time. So, uh, any kind of final thoughts or gaps in the discussion that we didn't uh, get to? On my well, end, no, I think it was covered covered nicely. I think again, the the main message is um, is that you know we are promoting screening and we have subtle differences. I think the the um, intention of guidelines is for you know uh, people who uh, know the evidence well to come together to be as thoughtful as they can in synthesizing it and providing you know recommendations. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the clinician in practice has to 100% agree with those or or follow them to the letter uh, of the law, but they need to understand the basis of them and, um, you know, then apply them to their individual patient in practice. So, uh, you know, I'd encourage the, the listeners to uh, look at these evidence syntheses and, and make their own judgment and uh and we're happy to learn over time. And I guess the last point I would make is, um, uh, you know, both Dr. Mazzone and I endorse screening. Um, and if just to put it in perspective, um, in, in terms of the of cancer deaths averted, or in other words, number of lives saved, lung cancer screening is is probably the most significant intervention uh, in cancer care in a generation. So I'm talking about all cancers, all therapies. And so I think it's worth recognizing, um, you know, and the impact that lung cancer screening can have. And obviously it's, it's large because lung cancer is such a dominant cancer problem, uh, and so the numbers are big, but uh, it, I think that it's cause for um, enthusiasm and, and for trying to help make our programs successful, and even if we have minor differences, uh, maybe important, but minor differences of inclusion criteria, I think we're, we're in agreement that this is an opportunity for a, a, a 
big chance to save lives of patients that are at risk of lung cancer. Agree. Guys, this was fantastic. I really appreciate uh, the, the well, one, the work both of you have been doing, and, and two, the time, the time for this, so our listeners can obviously hear an, uh, another perspective to add to the things that they're currently reading. So thank you so much. Thanks. Very yeah, thank you for including me. Yeah, thanks. Yep. Thanks, Dr. Mazzone. Thanks. Appreciate it, guys.